you're going to speak Jesus this morning. Like we're going to open the word, but we're going to speak Jesus this morning. We're going to speak it over your fear, whatever you came in, whatever you came with, whatever you brought, we're going to speak it over your anxiety. Nothing else matters. You're going to walk out of here knowing more about being more in love with Jesus this morning than when you came in. We're going to speak Jesus this morning until every dark addiction starts to break. We're going to speak it over your family who stands beside you, who stands upstairs. We're going to speak Jesus this morning. God, you're so good. You're so good to bring us together because you love us. God, remind us of your sovereignty over everything that happens in our life or around us or in the world around us. Remind us of your sovereignty. And even that picture that you are sitting confidently on your throne. You're not walking back and forth. You're not pacing, but you are sitting confidently on the throne. God, thank you for your goodness this morning. Your holy and perfect and just name. Amen. Have a seat with us this morning. Yeah, it's a little bit long, but we're not just getting out of a sermon. So praise God. One of his... Way to throw me off, Eric. <laughs> so if you have your Bible, and I'm, and I'm assuming because we are not communist China, you guys brought a Bible because we have this beautiful thing where we have the freedom to bring our Bible, open it, have it together. So if you have it, bring it with I do say that to our students all the time. This is like a crazy thing that we have access to right now in our world. may not be forever. So praise God we have it. Students are waving. Good to see you guys. They've heard this one. Um, if you brought your little piece of paper, you were handed it on the way in. If not, Bruce at the back will hand you one. If you don't have it, just raise your hand. He's going to run out because I probably forgot to tell him to get them. But this is what we give to our students. And as we go through this, I want you guys to either walk through it. There's a pen in front of you and just fill it in as we go. Or you can bring it home and relook at it, reevaluate what we learned this morning. But this morning we're in Colossians 2. We looked at Colossians 1 last week. If you walk away with anything, I want you to remember from last week that you are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach because of what Jesus is and who he is. This week we're going to look at something else. There's, there's a sentence or a saying in the Christian world, and it's just this. It's Jesus, maybe you can fill the end in with me. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If I surveyed a thousand congregants over a hundred different types of churches, and I asked them, what does Christianity offer? Like, what does being a Christian mean? What does it offer you in your life? I'm sure the answers would be vast. They would be very wide. I'm going to give you an example of what I think watching some of the TV preachers and watching some other social media things. I'm going to give you an example of what I think some of the answers would be. I think some would say health or wealth or success. Some would say peace of mind. Some would say rights and freedoms. Some would say incredible potlucks, Baptist. Some would say a better career. Some would use it as a way to justify legalism or justify to hate or disagree with a certain group of people. Some would say it brings fulfillment of dreams and desires. Some would say it guarantees happiness or an ease in life. If you're a Christian right now and you've heard those, you're probably thinking, no, no, no. You can check no to most of those. The answer is this, and it's this alone. There's one true answer, and hopefully you know it, but if you don't, let me remind you of what it is. Christianity offers one thing, and it's Christ. And it's Christ alone. Like it's nothing else. We're not giving you anything else. There's no promises here outside of this that you will have Christ and Christ alone. And Christ is enough. Chapter two, we're going to start, we're, we're going to talk about building our lives up in Christ. 
building our lives up underneath Christ. And the theme of the New Testament is Jesus. Like the, the message is this, if you, if you don't have Christ, then you have nothing. Like there may, be, there may be lots, you might have wealth or riches, family, good deeds, you may have amazing biblical knowledge or authority to respect power, but all of it is nothing if you don't have Christ. Like have Christ, you can know Christ, but if you don't have Christ, it's nothing. Philippians 3, 8, Paul reminds us. He says, I count, it all things, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. My Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them rubbish. Students remember the little history on that word. It's, it's a little bit worse, but I count them rubbish that I might gain Christ. So if you're sitting here and you're very desperate and you're struggling and you're low and you're lacking, but if you have Christ, let me remind you, you have everything. That means you have hope and redemption. That means you have true freedom, forgiveness, salvation. You have eternity. So Jesus plus nothing else equals everything. Because if Jesus plus something were true, if it was Jesus plus something, then Jesus wasn't enough. Then his perfection isn't perfection. Then his word isn't enough. Then his truth isn't enough. So I'm telling you confidently here, his word is true. He is perfect. He is enough. His death was enough. And as we look at this chapter, I'm going to remind you that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's all you need. And it's a sweetness. Like, it's a sweetness to say, okay, it's not on me. It can't be me. It's not like, okay, I have to have a really good mental health before I come at this. Because I, I don't. It's not like really good works. Because I don't do those very well. It's not a really good prayer life, and it's not an incredible biblical knowledge, but I'm also not erasing those things because once we know Jesus, once we get a hold of who Jesus is in our lives, we start to have an incredible prayer life because we want to commune with God the Father. We start to have this biblical knowledge because I can't get out of the Word. He starts to fill me, and there's joy as I read the pages of God's Word and Scripture, and it's overwhelming, so I can't get enough. And good works start to flow out of me because I know who Jesus is, I get who He is, and I can't stop but to do good things to those around me, even to those people who hate me. Like that's the result of knowing Jesus. It's not the salvation, but those are the results of knowing Jesus. I'm going to read with me. I'm going to take a drink. It's going to be a bit, but read with me. We're going to go from 2, 1, right to 14. And if you have your highlighters or pens, just hold them steady. So I might tell you just to circle a couple things while we go. 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of un and understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments, even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit according to the traditions of man according to the elementary principles of this world rather than according to Christ. For in him, 
all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete as he is the head and rule over all authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who has raised him from the dead. 13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of doubt of, of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. That is a great portion of scripture. And it ends with such a sweet, Thing, but let's just go right back to the start. Verse two, it says that their hearts might be encouraged having been knit together in love. Here's his heart for the church. Jeff just talked about it. We didn't even talk about that, Jeff. This is great. We're gonna talk about it for a second here. That our, that our love, our church would be known by how our love knits us together. It's like for the sake of the gospel, it's love that would keep us together. So what does that not mean? It means it's not, it's not anything else that divines our church. Like it's not what divides us. It's not what we disagree on. It's not what we don't believe in. It's not what we can't agree to, but it is love that Christ has given to us. It is love for each other. That, that is what will define our church. In fact, it's two things. If we keep looking there, it says, it's love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. So if I could go out to the front and put up a giant sign in the front of a church that would define us, it would be love and Christ. Love and Christ, love and Christ. There's a lot of other words that we wanna use to define us. It should be love and it should be Christ. It uses the word wealth. It says a wealth, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance like sometimes we perverted that word wealth, what that means. But here's what wealth is, a full knowledge of the mysteries of God in Christ himself. Church, we are a wealthy family because we know who Jesus is. Like if we actually realize, if we can really comprehend, and there is some ties to last week, so if I'm doubling down, that's fine. This is the same book. Um, if we realize that we don't need Jesus plus something else, something that the world would offer, then here's the stoop. We're not gonna be persuaded by arguments that seem plausible, by things that stand outside of scripture, that things that are not true. We're not gonna be as easily persuaded when we have the full wealth of understanding of the mysteries of God. We are gonna hold on and hold fast to that truth. So we're not gonna fall prey to the endless temptation that this world will not stop propagating. You know how many students and how many young adults and how many adults are gonna fall prey to the lie that sex, wealth, drugs is gonna to lead to some form of joy? Like how many of our students, how many of our adults, how many of our young adults, how many of us believe that there's some idea that everybody can have their own truth? It's a lie of the world, it's a persuasion. What about the idea that we can create happiness by going against God's created design for us, not only for marriage, but for our bodies. Perversions and twisting of truth. And frankly, we won't be convinced that we were created by a mere accident or by some sort of random process as explained by false and weak and failing science. Because we're persuaded by God, by the truth of God's word. 
There's a really sweet progression here as we look through the word here. As we're going from verse 4, it says, don't be taken captive by plausible arguments. I mean, we, we got we to gotta understand everything we view, see, touch, or do in the world outside of Christ is going to persuade you that something else is truth. I mean, our students are living in a world, if they're in a public school, if they're in the public world, if they're um, on, online in any sort of social media, they're going to stand to hear truth, endless versions of truth that polar opposites the Bible, directly against what God's word is. It's going to go straight against God's word, but it's not just our students that are going to be infiltrated. It's our news, our music, social media, churches, politics, homes, televisions, everything we fill our lives with. When it's not God's word, when it's not the word, everything we fill our lives with is going to twist us and turn us away from the truth of who God is. Man, so how do we keep ourselves from getting caught up with persuasive arguments? Well, look, let's look at what Paul says, verse 6. It says, so if you have received Christ, so if, you, if you've made Christ your king, if, if you've made Christ the king of your life, then what? Then it says to walk in him, to walk in Christ. Like, well, how do we walk in Christ? It just, it's a statement that says this. We want to walk in, we want to walk in such a way that we pattern our lives after Christ. Walking in Christ means we want to pattern our lives walking after Christ. How Christ? And how do we do that? Thankfully, I don't have a lot of good answers for you, but the word does. So let's look at verse 7. It says this. It's just the first word says rooted. Firmly rooted. My translation says having been firmly rooted. I don't know if you've ever heard of the shepherd's tree. I did a little research. I like doing research. It's the thing I do. So shepherd's tree. It's in the Kalahari Desert. It has roots that go 230 feet or 70 kilometers into the soil. Like we're talking here to Aurelia. Like its roots in the, the shepherd's tree. First off, let's note the name. Kind of cool. Okay, we're going to get into that. The shepherd's tree has roots in the middle of the Kalahari Desert that shoot 230 feet deep into the ground. And this desert, which is known as a horrible desert that is nothing but death and dying around it, has a tree in the middle of a desert that shoots green leaves, that displays life. There's nothing that shakes this tree. There's not earthquakes, there's not drought, there's not sand mites, there's not intense heat or winds. And I'm just gonna read you this quote. It says, when extreme droughts hit or heat waves occur, leading the withering or even dying of all other plant life, the shepherd's tree remains green. And its secret is that the roots penetrate deep into the ground until it reaches the subterranean watercourse. Tell you a little story, when I was 16, my family called us into a living room, and we gathered together, and with my dad, who's a, an incredible man, he's funny, he's strong, he's sound, he loves the word. He was very broken there, and as my mom spoke, they, they said, your dad has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I remember being in school, we always had like MS drives and MS skip rope things or whatever it was, and I remember hearing all about multiple sclerosis, and my heart just sunk. Like it was devastating for us. He was young, he was 50, we were young. And all of a sudden, something had shifted in our lives, and my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and we just entered as a family into this desert. Like, we didn't know what was coming next. There was just this thought, like, is it going to lead to death? Does it lead to hardship? What is going to happen next? We didn't have any answers, but here's, what, here's the most beautiful thing that happened in my whole life. My dad, a man of, like, joy that knew the word, served, ministered in the church his whole life. But he is diagnosed with MS, he was unshifted. Like I grew up where every single morning my mom was in a rocking chair reading her word, my dad was in his chair reading the word. Together they, were, they woke up and got in the word and the next morning he woke up and he got in the word. 
And the next morning he had joy. And in the middle of a family desert, which devastated us, like which, which made us weep together and fear together, my dad just sprouted green leaves like a shepherd's tree in the middle of a desert because he had tap roots that went 230 feet deep in the Kalahari Desert and he reached the subterranean watercourse, which is the life, like the water of life, the spring of life, the name of Jesus, he knew him, he knew the word. He was founded in the gospels, founded in the word and he knew that nothing was gonna shake him. Nothing could tear him apart because whatever happened, God is sovereign and he was gonna take him. It's a beautiful thing, man. Even the idea like the shepherds, when, when all things else would die, they would bring the sheep around the shepherd. They would cut the limbs off and the sheep would eat these, these green leaves because it was just gonna grow again because they reached the water source. Have you reached the water source in your life? Like if we want to walk in God, we have to be deeply aware of who God is. We wanna walk in him. We can't just like, have a Bible, think we know what it says, pretend what we know what it says, never get into it and just expect to have strength and life in the middle of our deserts. What I'm saying is we have to walk through the word daily. We have to hold on to it. You have to be firmly rooted. Picture the tree and just ground yourself in God's word. Ground it so when everything comes, you don't sway, you don't shake. You might be fearful, you might be scared, you might be sad, but you know God, you know who he is. You have a strength in his word. Church, we really, really, as a people, have to build our foundation on his word. And the second part of that, it continues on. It says, now being built up in him. This is, this is very, it's, it's not simple to, to do, but it's simple to grasp. Being built up in him, it means forget what everybody else has said, even the good things. Forget about what everybody else said, except what Christ says about you. And I could read all morning scripture on that, but we'll just go from last week. We saw in 1 Colossians, it was holy, blameless, beyond reproach. In Galatians 4, 7, no longer slaves. You're no longer slave to fear or sin. In the same one, he calls us a child of the living God, heir to the kingdom. 1 Peter 2, 9, it's one of the verses that we're working through with our students for the year. It says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priest a holy nation, God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you wanna be built up, if you wanna be actually built up, get to know what Christ thinks about you. Get to know what the word says about us as children of the living God. Everything else is gonna fall, everything else is gonna fail, everything else will break, but God's word will never fail, it will never fall, will never break, and it stands true and remains true. So you wanna know who you are and how to be built up in Christ? Read and know God's word. And then it says three, it says to be established in your faith. This is just pointing to Christian maturity, like maturing as a Christian. It means you need to grow in humility. We need to grow in grace. We need to grow in our biblical wisdom. And, and you wonder, well, how do I even do that? How do I begin this process? Let's loop back to the first point. Let's be firmly rooted. Like start there. If it's a race, just start here. Crack your Bible open every morning and start to pour into God's word and let's build your foundation. And then we can be established in our faith. It ends on this, verse seven ends on this note. It says abounding in thanksgiving. The results, the results of us being firmly rooted then being built up in Christ and being established in our faith, the results are this. We just abound in thanksgiving. Like we know, we know what we don't deserve. We know who we are. 
we know who God sees us as, and all of a sudden we understand redemption, hope, and a future. We have this joy all of a sudden, and out, out comes from us just abounding or overflowing thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is tough to find when you're suffering. Like to be thankful in suffering is tough to find, but if you start back at being firmly rooted and then you build up your identity underneath Christ and then you have a Christian maturity that is established in your faith, then the natural result, even in suffering, even in the worst, is having this outpouring of thanksgiving. It's an outpouring of thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done for us. We can, we can see that we have what we don't deserve. We're called what we have never been earned to be called. We are loved even in our disobedience and in our sin. We are rescued though we continue to fail. We are redeemed even though we are fallen. I mean, if we can recognize who Jesus is and we built our lives on that, then we will serve our life and our mission and our church and the people around us with a thanksgiving and a joy that seems really abnormal to the world around us. Because they're gonna look at you and say, how is it possible in your suffering you have so much joy? Verse eight gets a little deeper. It starts talking about how it says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception. According to the traditions of man, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ's church, I promise you, we are so easily deceived. We are easily deceived people. If we want something to be justified, we will justify it. If we don't want something to be sinful, we'll just say it's not sinful and we'll find whatever verse we can use to make it not sinful. If we, in our pride, want something that's immoral to be moral, we'll just call it moral, and then we'll find a verse to justify it. Like in every corner, in every corner of this world, if we want to justify a sin, it has been made very easy. Here's how you do it. Write it in Google however you want. Press enter. You'll get what you want. Is this a sin? Why isn't this a sin? Whatever you want to type in, you can get it justified however you want to justify it. These are the elementary principles of this world. These are the deceptions that we easily fall prey to and easily fall into. We have to know it's Jesus and nothing else that is everything, that we don't need the justifications of this world because we've been justified through Christ and he's given us great detail on how to move forward. Now, if you have your pen, we're gonna go through nine to 12. And I'm gonna highlight some words. I'm gonna say it a little bit. If you don't have it on the back of your sheet, you'll see it. But listen, and if you see, a, if you see some key phrases, circle it, it says, for in him, and that's a key phrase, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head, uh, head of all rule and authority. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I mean, that is just talking about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Everything is through him, for him, by him, and in him. We don't really need legalism or a rigid law, otherwise known as, as like a heavy religious principles or the traditions of men. Like we don't need dependency on the law because Christ, he didn't abandon it and he came and fulfilled it on our behalf. We don't need to be perfect or expect perfection before we approach the throne because Christ is perfection on our behalf. And here's a big one. Like we look at the world 
watch TV and see how they define love. We don't need how the world defines love because we know God and God is love. We're so desperate to be loved that we go to dark, terrible, twisted, dirty, filthy places to find love, to see love with poorly represented love, but we know God and God is love. Jesus is alone, Jesus alone is everything. And Christ is enough. Look at 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Like the picture I gave to my students is a little crass, but that's fine. If you're just driving down the road and you see a body on the side of the road and you get out and you look at it and it's, it's gray, it's bloating, it probably stinks a little bit. And you're like, oh, that's a dead body. Now the audacity of saying, hey, Brian, hop up. We know you're dead. Pull yourself together. Brian isn't thinking and he can't respond, but if he could, he'd be like, I can't because I'm dead. Like we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead. There's nothing you can do if you're dead to make yourself alive. You're dead. So here's what happens. Christ comes, God comes, and he makes us alive. Don't put the weight on yourself or the pride in yourself to think there's something you can do to make yourself from death to life. You're dead. Sin has caused a rotting corpse. And Christ comes and resurrects. And that is the sweetness of God's word. He calls us to himself. It's not religion, not good works, not a great prayer life, not mental health, not goodness, not our own goodness, not anything we can do, but it's God who comes alive and he makes us alive in him. And how does he do it? Look at 14 with me. This is amazing. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. If you were here last week, you heard about my binder and I actually have a record of debt with actual legal demands And you all have one too. We have this record of debt with his legal demands, but Christ comes and he cancels that record of debt. And here's what he does. Then he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And ask the band to come up. As you sit this morning and just think about this idea, there's a simplicity to it. If you think that this is something that you should get to, you're going to get to it. I'm telling you, folks, if you want to get to know God, you got to get to know his word. I mean, you have to be in his word. You have to read this. Otherwise, at times, we start worshiping a God that we don't even know, and then we start to invent a God that we don't really have any proof of what he's saying, but we just start to think things about God. Maybe we're merging things that we've heard from different people online, and we start to invent this. But here's what we need to do. We need to worship the God of truth, which is the God of the word. We need to open it. You need to read it. You need to invest in it. You don't need 9,000 little devotionals just to direct you towards it. You should open the word and start to read it and let the Holy Spirit direct you through it. Ask for direction. I mean, church, this morning, we just really want to speak Jesus. There's persuasive arguments around the world. We are going to get dragged in and caught up in philosophies that will kill us that will wound us and distort our thinking. But here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that we as a church will build our foundation on God's word and God's word alone will be then built up in him. And then we'll establish, be established in the faith, building our Christian maturity. And then we walk out those doors and start preaching Jesus. Like that song, just preach Jesus over anxiety. 
Don't worry about your persuasive arguments that you can't sort out, you're not strong enough, you're not good enough, I don't know all the words. Go and speak Jesus because you've been built up on him, but first, deeply found yourself in the word. Root yourself in the word. Let me pray this morning. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for Colossians. It's a sweet book, so full of truth. God, I'm humbled by how you view me. I'm humbled by what you've done. I'm reminded as I read your word of the sweet truth of who you are and who I am not, but now who I am under you. God, help us not to miss that. Help us to walk out of here with Bibles in hand and wake up tomorrow morning and read your word and the next morning and be filled with truth before we enter a world that is so twisted and perverted that will attack us on every level with untruths. Help us to first be filled with your truth, your truth and your truth alone. It is you, Jesus, plus nothing that is everything. God, thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the truth that I'm going to stand with them in the resurrection and sing before my Father. In your perfect name, amen.